Throughout the season of Lent, we've been in a series called Failures and Faithfulness, and together we've tracked through some characters in the Old Testament, starting with Adam and moving on, uh, hearing about Moses and his failures. Then we talked about Eli and his failures. Today we come to one of the kings and his failures. We're reading from 1 Kings chapter 12, starting at verse 25, and continuing on through chapter 13, verse 5, page 542 in the Bibles in the pews. We pick up in the middle of the story. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and he lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their lord Rehoboam, the king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem, so here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel, the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the festival held in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And at Bethel, he also installed priests at the high places he had made. On the 15th day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for, Israelite, for the Israelites and went up on the altar to make offerings. But by the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel as Jeroboam was offering by the, standing by the altar to make an offering. By the word of the Lord, he cried out against the altar, 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 this is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who make offerings here, and human bones will be burned on you. The same day, the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign the Lord has declared. The altar will be split apart, and the ashes on it will be poured out. When King Jeroboam cried, heard what the man of God cried out against the altar at Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, Seize him! But the hand he stretched out toward the man shriveled back, shriveled up so that he could not pull it back. Also, the altar was split apart and its ashes poured out according to the sign given by the man of God, by the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. None of the stories in our Lenten series have been particularly happy, and this one joins the others. When we read this passage about King Jeroboam this morning, we can run the risk of defining his character based on some of the worst 
choices in his life. He looks terrible in this passage. But we need to know that once upon a time, people really liked Jeroboam. If he had run a a political campaign in ancient Israel, his supporters would have shown up in droves. From humble beginnings, Jeroboam nevertheless had worked himself up to the notice of the king, Solomon. He became a man of standing, 1 Kings 11 says. And in recognition of his skillful and loyal service, Solomon promotes him to oversee all of his skilled labor force from the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim. Not only does Jeroboam enjoy the favor of King Solomon, he also enjoys the favor of God. As Jeroboam works under Solomon, the prophet Ahijah comes to Jeroboam with an object lesson. He takes a new cloak and he tears it up into 12 different pieces. And he hands 10 of them to Jeroboam and he says to him, because of Solomon's idolatry, Jeroboam, God is making a new plan for his monarchy, for his people. God will tear the unified kingdom away from Solomon and his offspring because Solomon has turned away from God. Jeroboam, Ahijah says, God has chosen you as the next king. You will rule the 10 tribes of Israel. And what's more, God will give you everything your heart desires if you only will turn to him and follow and obey him. So a rivalry springs up between Jeroboam and Solomon's house. Solomon ultimately tries to kill Jeroboam, who flees for his life to Egypt, where he lives in exile until after Solomon's death. The story that we hopped into today takes place just as this tearing of the kingdom is getting underway. Solomon has died His son Rehoboam has been crowned king in the mountains 40 miles north of Jerusalem at Shechem. And Jeremiah comes back from exile in Egypt, makes his way to Shechem. He wants to see what's going to happen now that Solomon has died. So crowds assemble for Rehoboam's coronation. They have come with burning questions. What kind of king will Rehoboam be? Will he use the same harsh measures to enforce labor policies that Solomon, his father, had? Or will the son of the king ease up on those quotas and long hours? The people appoint Jeroboam as their spokesperson, and he takes their requests and concerns and issues to the king. Rehoboam deliberates for three days, He gets some good advice, he gets some bad advice. Ultimately, he rejects the advice of his elders and establishes his authority. Establishes it with an iron fist. And in turn, 10 of those tribes revolt. They reject his leadership. Rehoboam runs for his life back to Jerusalem to rule Judah in Benjamin and to muster his troops for war against the north. And so it happens that Jeroboam is crowned king by God's promise, by the people's choice. And the day he is crowned, it seems as if Jeroboam has inherited two very solid pillars on which to build his rule. 
God's pledge of faithfulness to him in return for obedience, and the people's loyalty and love and vote of support. But then something happens, and immediately a crack starts to propagate up through those two pillars and undermine the foundation of Jeroboam's rule. The crack all gets started with Jeroboam's fear. Faced with a very real threat of civil war with Rehoboam, Jeroboam's first reasonable act is to fortify Shechem, to build himself a secure capital city. That makes sense. But he doesn't stop with his political security. He goes a step farther. He wants to establish the spiritual borders of the nation, too. We heard him thinking to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to Rehoboam, the house of David. If these people travel to Jerusalem and they go there to offer sacrifices, their allegiance is going to shift. It's going to be transferred to Rehoboam. And even worse, they're going to come and kill me. They won't need me anymore. So with this dire outlook in his mind, Jeroboam consults his advisors and decides to set up worship centers in his realm. At the edges of his borders, from Bethel in the south to Dan in the far north, everyone living in the ten tribes of Israel can now worship within friendly territory. But the narrator of 1 Kings says that this thing is a problem. This thing becomes a sin. It marks a decisive turning point. Jeroboam's fear that the people's hearts will turn to King Rehoboam blinds him to a far more significant threat that by Jeroboam's own actions, the hearts of the people will not just turn to a different king, they'll turn away from the living God to idols. Blinded by his fear, Jeroboam exchanges love for Yahweh expressed through faithful worship, where God said, how God said, at the place God named as his dwelling place on earth. And in exchange, Jeroboam is trying to protect his own limited, merely human kingdom. This thing became a sin. The king, by popular choice, appeals to the Israelites' comfort and convenience, and it doesn't take him very long to sell his new national program of worship. One thing leads to another, and soon Jeroboam is pointing priests of his choice to high places of his choice at times that he himself determines. And he ends up leading the people far afield from the worship of the living God. The sin becomes so notorious in the memory of Israel that Jeroboam's whole legacy is summed up by it. The writer of Kings refers to it frequently through the reigns of other kings, the bad choices they make, as Jeroboam's sin, the sins of the house of Jeroboam. It's as if the writer of the book of Kings is laying the sins of a whole nation squarely on the shoulders of this king. 200 years after the time of Jeroboam, the Assyrians carry off the Israelites into exile. And 2 Kings 17 gives us the reason for that exile. 
Jeroboam enticed Israel away from following the Lord and caused them to commit a great sin. The Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam. They did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from his presence, as he had warned through his servants, the prophets. I would sure like to be remembered if anyone has any reason to remember me 200 years after I have died. Not with a legacy like that. It's really hard to imagine that Jeroboam or any leader called and appointed and sent by God would set out and intend to lead a whole group of people away from the living God. But we know that that happens. It happens in this story. It happens sometimes in our world. And so it gives us pause. How does the thing go off the rails so badly? Jeroboam makes a series of bad decisions in, re in response to the threats that are facing him and his people. He stews and he ruminates and he unpacks scenarios and he sees increasingly catastrophic results. And so his decisions about what he will do are not based in the promises of God or in the reality that God sees, but in Jeroboam's perception of reality as far as he can see. It's a very understandable human problem. People don't tend to make good decisions when we're reacting under threat. This week, a small group of council members and I met with an international crisis response expert and a Christian therapist named Bob Vanderpool. Uh, Bob works internationally as well as here in the States when there's a natural disaster or a large-scale tragedy. He goes into town and he sets up crisis response. And we asked him to come to help some of us understand, on a human level, what happens to people and to communities when we experience ongoing challenges. What factors and habits can help us cope and adapt? And I'm only going to talk about one of the things that we learned that day. But one of the things we talked about was how our brains work. How our brains respond to perceived threats. We pictured the brain as a fist, like this. And the decision-making center of our brains is right up here, our prefrontal cortex. We represented that by these fingers right here. And the amygdala inside, deep inside our brains, is the reflexive part of our brain the instinctive response center when we are feeling that we are in danger and we need to run or we need to fight or we need to freeze. This is the part of us that's operating. So when our fears go on high alert, our brains make a shortcut to keep us safe. Our thoughtful, reasoned decision-making center, <laughs> offline. This is really, really helpful if you're in the woods and you need to run quickly away from a bear, or if you're faced with rising floodwaters and you need to get away quickly, that your body would just respond. But it's not so great for many of the run-of-the-mill fears that I encounter. For that, I need this thinking part of me to respond to that other part of my brain, to work together with it. So when we feel anxiety rise and we look around and we see there's no rising water and no bears, we can take a minute 
and we can breathe. We can invite the Lord's Spirit into that spot. We can slow our reactions down as we see that we aren't in imminent mortal danger. We can start to think a little bit more clearly. Have you ever made a bad decision in a moment of high fear or stress? A decision that ended up leading you away from God? I know that I have. Felt fear, reacted, did something dumb. Words or behaviors that you wish you could take back are released into the world and sometimes take on a life of their own. Sometimes we live to really regret the effects of moments like that. And so I wonder if that's where Jeroboam's bad choices got started. And then once he began down the path, a path paved by fear, cultivated by idolatry, it was pretty hard to turn the whole train back around. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller names possible idols that even devout people can turn to. Sometimes because we're scared. Sometimes because something happens very gradually and we hardly even notice it happening. Keller writes this. An idol is something that we look to for things that only God can give. Idolatry functions widely inside religious communities when doctrinal truth is elevated to the position of a false god. This occurs when people rely on the rightness of their doctrine for their standing with God rather than on God himself and his grace. It is a subtle and deadly mistake. Making an idol out of doctrinal accuracy, ministry success, or moral rectitude leads us to constant internal conflict, arrogance and self-righteousness, and oppression of those whose views differ. What idols call out to us when we get scared? control, passivity, when we might have some agency, the pursuit of security, peace at any price. Something tugs at all of our hearts for allegiance, but nothing but God is strong enough to bear the pressure of that weight. So we do well to watch ourselves for this, to ask God in his grace to show us where fear may be blinding us. Little turns in our hearts away from reliance on Jesus, his grace and his goodness to us, the firm promise of living our life with him. It's possible to find ourselves quite far down the road from where we began or where we wanted to end up. Our God knows how our bodies and our brains and our communities work. He made them. He knows our tendency to rely on what we can do and what we can see rather than on what he can do and the long, long vision that he has for the kingdom that he's making. And maybe that's why he commands us, do not be afraid. This command shows up more often than any other command in the Bible. And a whole bunch of you probably knew that, and that was news to me this week. I learned that this week talking with Peter, and yesterday my husband said, I've known that since college, where were you? <laughs> Somehow this fear-riddled human forgot 
or never learned this important truth. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 75 times in 24 biblical books, from Genesis to Revelation, God commands his people, do not be afraid. Very often that command comes at times when fear is a totally understandable, instinctive human response. Do not be afraid, God says to a childless Abraham. Do not be afraid, Moses says to the people at the edge of the Red Sea. Do not be afraid, Mary, the angel says. Do not be afraid, little flock, for I have been pleased to give you the kingdom. Do not be afraid is not just a command. It's also a word of reassurance. We don't have to serve fear all the time because we serve a God who's with us, a God who is strong. After reading what the man of God says against the altar in 1 Kings chapter 13 today, you might expect to look over to 1 Kings 14 and see that this promised Davidic king, Josiah, has come to the throne and he's starting already to clean out the sin of Jeroboam from the land. But God works on a long arc. 200 years after the time of Jeroboam's original sin, the king, foretold by the prophet that day, comes to the throne. And Josiah will reform the nation's worship practices. God will turn the hearts of the idolatrous people back to his own heart. He'll use the exile to do it. And Josiah's kingship anticipates another king who will come. This king takes the sin of Jeroboam that has echoed down through the centuries, that's been on the shoulders of his legacy, on his own shoulders. This king will face down the fear of suffering, the anxiety about abandonment that could tempt him to turn away from faithfulness to God. And he will respond with trust and obedience. And ultimately, this king will ascend to a wooden altar that should split apart in protest at the injustice of this sacrifice. This king is called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This king's grace destroys all of our idols. This king's great perfect love pass, casts out all of our fear. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, our God, in a strange way, it's reassuring to look back um, on the people that have been a part of your story throughout history, to be reminded that we're in good company when we feel like we don't measure up. Also, to have our eyes turned to you, who took our place, who, Lord, you do measure up, and you offer yourself to us today and every day, saying, trust in me, child, I will lead you all the way home. Amen.